Brothers and sisters, it's been uh, such a joy to uh, be with you uh, this uh, Lord's Day. And uh, whatever Marla and I, uh, my dear wife and I, were expecting from today, uh, all has been exceeded uh, in the joy of Christian fellowship, uh, the joy of worshiping with you. Uh, I, could, I could honestly hardly sing this morning because I was so overwhelmed and moved by the singing uh, by the truth that we were singing and by the robust nature of the singing. And so praise the Lord for a, a hymn and psalm singing church here in, uh, in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, again, I do want to bring you uh, the warmest of greetings from our congregation in Charleston, South Carolina. We do welcome you to worship with us if you're ever uh, in town. Uh, and uh, we would love to see you. I also want to uh, thank once again um, my friend, uh, Pastor David McWilliams and the session and uh, what a, a lovely time we had uh, this afternoon at uh, Nathan and Mary Jane's house and with about 150 of their closest friends. Um, well, you know, I, I thought we had lots of people at our house, but uh, uh, I don't think so. Um, uh, so we, we hope to, uh, to show some of that hospitality to, to you if you're ever in in town, and uh, we would love to see you. It's also a delight, of course, to, uh, to connect with O. Palmer Robertson. Um, I met, o, uh, met Palmer back in, in, in uh, about 20 years ago in Cambridge, England, uh, in the manuscripts room with Chad Van Dixhorn, uh, and we were all there together uh, enjoying fellowship for a few minutes, and uh, it's been from them to, to now uh, that we've been able to, to connect, and he is speaking at our uh, GRN conference in uh, in May, which I do invite all of you to as well. Our GRN National Conference is uh, the 3rd and 4th of May in Charlotte, North Carolina at Christ Covenant Church, and we would love uh, for you to join us for that occasion. And uh, Dr. Robertson will be uh, speaking uh, on, on that occasion uh, as well. Uh, well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Jonah chapter 3, uh, as we look at this uh, very powerful book. I, I, I wish we could uh, sort of spend a lot of time in this book tonight, more time than we have. Uh, but I want to look at chapter 3 in particular because of some of the things that we, uh, we, we learned there about the nature of God's Word, the, the power of the gospel unto salvation, what we should put our hope and confidence in. Uh, but if you'll look with me at uh, Jonah chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's uh, inerrant, uh, inspired, infallible, efficacious, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Please hear the word of God. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out uh, against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, 
Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Uh, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, would you illumine our hearts and minds that we might hear your word, that we might believe your word, and that we might respond by faith to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When people think of the book of Jonah, of course, they immediately think of the big fish. Uh, the big fish, perhaps a whale that swallowed up Jonah. It's the first thing that our minds go to, this amazing miracle, whether or not the thing itself is true. I remember one of the first worship services I went to as a new Christian uh, in, in, at, in Clemson. Uh, I went to this large mainline church, and that particular Sunday, the pastor said that the book of Jonah is a myth. I said, well, I know I'm not going to this church. Um, and so I uh, continued searching for churches and finally found one that believed in the power of God's Word and the inerrancy of God's Word and the truthfulness of God's Word. Uh, and so uh, people talk about uh, the fish, whether or not the miracle is true, and, and there are all these things surrounding the book of Jonah. But really, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is not primarily about a great fish who swallows a reluctant prophet even though that is a part of the story, of course. Jonah is not primarily about a great fish who swallows a reluctant prophet. The book of Jonah is chiefly about a great God who loves guilty sinners. It's about a great God, a sovereign God, who loves guilty sinners. The book of Jonah has so many different contours and, and interesting things we learn about, uh, about man, about a reluctant prophet, about the hesitation to evangelize, about hatred for a, a people group and an ethnicity which, which makes Jonah not want to go there. And we learn a lot of things about ourselves when we study the book of Jonah. I wish we could unpack all of it uh, this evening, but uh, I do want to just give a quick recap about what has happened up until now uh, in the book of Jonah. Uh, of course, Jonah lived and ministered in the 8th century BC during the reign of Jeroboam II between the years 793 and 753 BC. Of course, if you look back to chapter 1, we notice uh, that the language is very similar to what we read at the beginning of chapter 3, and that is that God called uh, and commanded Jonah to preach repentance to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the great enemies of the people of Israel. So essentially God was saying, I want you, Jonah, to go and to preach to the enemies of Israel, to preach repentance, to preach this God of promise, to preach the promises of God and the judgment of God. And, and, and so um, 
Uh, so then Jonah, of course, uh, and look at verse 1. It says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But rather than joyfully rising up and obeying God's commission and command, as we see in other parts of Scripture where there's sort of ready and quick obedience, he instead rose up and fled to the port city of Joppa and boarded a ship for Tarshish, a town located approximately 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He literally ran in the opposite direction to what God wanted him to do. Uh, It says twice in chapter 1 that Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. Now, is that possible? It's not possible. But but when it's talking about the presence of God there, it's talking about really the, the special presence of God. Now, there's, a, there's a, a sense in which whenever we are seeking to run from God, to run away from His will, that we are trying to get away from Him in some way. Now, some people do that by leaving the church. Others do that by trying to get away from their family because there's a special presence of God where, there, where God's people are fellowshipping and communing with God. Where two or three are got, gathered, there God is in their midst. So there's a sense in which Jonah would have known theologically that God is everywhere. And yet, because he was in rebellion, running the opposite direction, he's fleeing the presence of God with Israel. The presence of God with those whom he knew were walking with God and knew what he should have been doing. And so he's fleeing the presence of God. We see Adam and Eve doing this in the garden after they sinned. They're, they're hiding from God. Maybe there's someone here tonight that in some way you are hiding from God. You are, uh, you, are, you are hiding from Him. You're running from Him in some way in your own heart and mind. Uh, uh, so we need to think about these things in our, in our, as it uh, relates to our own lives. So he flees the presence of the Lord. While, while Jonah then was on this ship and he was taking a splendid nap uh, on the cargo ship heading for Tarshish, it says in verse 4, that God hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And so these experienced sailors were so afraid of this fierce, fierce storm that they began to cry out to their, to their gods in despair. And then when that didn't work, uh, they threw all their cargo over the sides into the sea, all while Jonah was sleeping. The captain of the ship then found Jonah asleep and woke him up from his slumber. And he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? We are going to die. Cry out to your God. Perhaps, in other words, perhaps your God was offended. Maybe he can help us. Our gods can't help us. Maybe yours can. Jonah then admitted his guilt. That he was fleeing the one true and living God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. The one who made the land and the sea. And Jonah, more willing to die than to carry out the mission God had given him to do, to take the message of judgment and salvation to the Ninevites, says, throw me over. Just throw me over. And when they did, they were reluctant at first, but then they did, the sea was calm. The storm stopped. After Jonah was thrown overboard, all was calm. No one could save him now. He was left for dead in the middle of the ocean. Then something amazing happened. The same God who hurled this wind and tempest upon the sea, uh, the same God who later commanded a worm to eat the plant 
that Jonah was so focused on. Um, this same God sent a, a large fish, probably a whale, to swallow Jonah whole. Was Jonah dead in the fish and God resurrected him before he was spit out onto dry land? We, we don't know. We'll find out one day. Was Jonah alive the whole time inside the whale? That would have been a miserable experience. We know he was alive for some time because there is a psalm in chapter 2 that we see where he is actually praying in the belly of the fish. But what we do know is that this whole event points forward to Christ as Christ himself declares that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days and three nights in, in the earth. And as Jonah rose, so I will rise. In chapter 2, we have this wonderful prayer that Jonah offers, again, while inside this great fish. This prayer is filled with God-directed praise and gratitude for the glorious mercy God has demonstrated to him. And by God's grace, Jonah rejoiced in the steadfast, covenant-keeping love of God. And it's important to mention here that God is way more compassionate than we are. That God is, is way more concerned about the lost than, than we are. And in our best moments of concern about the lost, God's heart is to, is to draw sinners to himself for his own glory. And in this book, we see this over and over again, that this Jonah, who is reluctant to reach out to the lost, to unbelievers, actually is like a mirror reflecting back to ourselves this kind of Jonah-itis. We have this, this Jonah-itis, this, um, this spiritual sickness of being unconcerned about the lost people around us or even wishing ill on our enemies rather than loving them. Didn't Jesus say to love our enemies and to pray for those who what? Who persecute you? And yet in our day of politically of political polarization, where so many conservative Christians are watching uh, 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 Fox News, other conservative channels who are seeking to stir up within you a kind of sensationalism and a, a, and a hatred for political enemies and for national enemies. And all that is said is... is uh, is, is full of, of, of anger and hate against enemies that we as Christians start thinking, you know, I, I, I really am I'm, I'm not that concerned about that particular people group or this particular political party. In fact, I'm so angry with them, I don't even give time to pray for them. And I don't seek to reach out to them with the gospel. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever struggled with that? Well, if you have, then you're not alone because so many of us have struggled with that. Jonah is the ultimate example of the guy who doesn't want to go to his enemies and preach the gospel to them. He'd rather die than do that. We have to ask ourselves, is this often how we respond to the lost, to those who are so different from what we're used to, from what we're around? Do we have compassion on the lost? Uh, do we believe in Genesis 12 that when God talks about his, he, uh, sets forth his covenant of grace and it says 
uh, that um, through your seed, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Are we concerned for the lost nations? Do we have compassion for the lost? Does this come out in the way we speak to our neighbors and our friends and people around town? Do we immediately make judgments of people and say, I don't want to be around them? Or do we immediately have compassion on them as those who need Christ? These are the questions that emerge in this wonderful uh, little book. Well, after spending three days in the fish, it states in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Jonah needed a shower after that. So after the fish had, 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 had uh, vomited him up by God's command, notice that verse 1 states in chapter 3, the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time. The second time saying, arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Different than his initial response in chapter 1, verse 3 states that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, a very basic application here. It's always good to do what the Lord tells you the first time. We can save ourselves so much trouble and heartache if we would respond obediently to the word of of the Lord. It's always best, boys and girls here, uh, covenant children, it's always best to follow the, 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 the word of God first rather than being disobedient and then uh, doing it later. But we all are thankful that, uh, uh, that the Lord is patient with us, that he loves us. We see that in the life of Jonah. The passage says that Nineveh was a great city in verse 3. Uh, it's a three days journey in breadth. And, and in chapter 4, in verse 11, we see that there were 120,000 people there. Uh, Jerusalem at the time had about 30,000 people. So as Jonah walked through this great city filled with people, he cried out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now look with me at verse 5. One of the greatest miracles in all of the Bible. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. If you ever doubt that God can save someone that you know in your workplace, in your family, a child who has thrown off the promises of God and has thrown off the promises of their baptism and is living Uh, away from the church, living in sin, if you ever doubt God's power to save anyone, read this verse. The Ninevites were known as the most violent, wicked, idolatrous people in the world. They literally, when they captured their enemies, they literally skinned them alive. And would nail their skins up on the wall. They were a ruthless, brutal, violent people. And and they believed God. They believed God. They were given the gift of faith. 
These idolatrous, violent, wicked people believed God's word as it was preached by Jonah. The greatest to the least of them responded to the news of God's truth by calling for a fast and putting on sackcloth. Sackcloth, of course, was a a kind of coarse clothing that was typically made of goat hair. And in those days, it was typically worn by poor people, prisoners, and those who were in mourning. This may have been the greatest revival the, word, the world has ever known. And as uh, with other great revivals in history, it is through the simple means of the proclamation of the Word of God that people are saved and lives are transformed. It's through the, did you catch this? It's through the simple preaching of the Word of God. There are no gimmicks, there are no techniques, there are no smoke machines, there's no, you know, uh, Jerusalem coffee shop uh, there being set up by, by, by Jonah. Um, I'm not against coffee, but uh, th- there's this idea in modern day missiology that you need to come in and you need to do all these things before you can even begin to share the good news of the gospel. I don't see this in the Acts of the Apostles. I don't see this in the Prophets. I see people coming in and preaching the gospel and reaching out to people with the gospel, which is what people need. Even the king of Assyria, when he heard the word of God, arose from his throne, removed his regal robes, put on sackcloth, and threw himself down into the dust and the ashes. He also issued a decree that a fast will be observed by all living creatures in his kingdom and that all should cry out for mercy, that everyone should turn from his evil ways and specifically from the violence that was in their hands. And what's interesting is what we find in verse 9. Look there with me. Who knows, he says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice this, beloved, that the king doesn't presume upon God's grace. Today, there's this presumption, well, of course God loves me and is going to forgive me. Of course he is. It's, it's, it's my right. I'm an American. Uh, I'm from the South. Of, of course. I just live my life, and, and God sort of is there just to forgive me, and I I live like I want to live. And there's this kind of presumption of God's mercy. People deserve His mercy, many think. But the king demonstrates a kind of true repentance and, uh, and submission before God by coming with no demands, no qualifications, no conditions, no, God, we will repent if... I will change my ways if, there's no if, the king makes no qualifications. He knows that they all deserve God's just condemnation and wrath, so he simply asks God for undeserved mercy. When God saw their repentance, we learn here, and the actions flowing from their repentance, verse 10 states, when God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What a glorious moment in the timeline of redemptive history. What a memorable scene in the history of mission. When God, through the simple preaching of the word, saved 
an entire city of idol worshipers. Can you imagine if a, if a 21st century church planting sort of hip church planting network was able to get in a time machine and swoop back and, and meet Jonah right when he was, well, maybe after he took a shower, after he was spit up, takes a shower, he meets with them, and they, they start to, to talk about how they can reach the Ninevites. And they come up with all these techniques, all these methods, all this pre-evangelism and, 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 and this kind of stuff. Look what God does. Look what God does. It's through his word. Now, there have been um, large conversion stories, revivals uh, in the past. Uh, one of them, a, a really extraordinary one, you may have heard of it, is through the New Tribes Mission. Uh, this is many years ago, maybe 25 or 30 years ago, a group went in uh, to a tribe uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea. And what they did was they began teaching the, 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 the timeline of redemptive history, starting in Genesis at creation and teaching these natives just right along, progressively, what's happening in the biblical story. And they go all the way through, and they're just riveted. And I forget how many sessions they, they did, but uh, people who were sick, were, uh, they, were, they demanded to be brought in on their stretchers so they can hear the next segment of what's happening. And, and these people were gathering together to hear the Word of God being taught. And, and then when Christ was crucified and He died, the people were just a mess. They, they, they had fallen in love with Christ, this, this one who was the promised one. And how could he be, how could he be dead now? And, and they were devastated. And then on the third day, of course, uh, they all met on Sunday morning. And the, the missionaries began to preach that Christ was alive. And he, he was no longer dead. And he had conquered sin, hell, and death. And, and the people were sitting there. And they were just, just amazed. They were they were overwhelmed, and, and uh, one of the, uh, the tribesmen uh, gets up and he says, E Tau, which means I believe. E Tau, I believe. And he began to say it over and over, and then someone else said, E Tau, I believe. And then uh, before long, the entire village was standing up and saying, E Tau. And, and uh, literally, for over an hour, they were jumping up and down and celebrating, I believe, I believe. And, the, and really, the entire village. Was, was converted. Um, how, how that uh, relates to, to, to Nineveh, uh, we, we don't know except to say that there were a lot more people in Nineveh and it said that there was widespread uh, repentance. Um, a kind of revival um, uh, and, and work of God bringing people to himself that perhaps we've never seen before in the history of the world. Uh, this gives us great confidence and great hope should fuel our prayers as it concerns mission around the world. We should never despair over the state of the world or the state of our culture as all of the talking heads and, and the political commentary. I'm not saying that all they say is bad and lots of things they say are good and helpful and informative, but the, 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 they're, they're, not, they're not thinking of things in a Christian way. They're looking at it in a political way. And we need to be careful that we don't allow our hearts to be caught up in that so that we forget to have compassion on the lost and to take the gospel to our nearest neighbors and to the farthest reaches of the earth. So what can we learn from this uh, exciting narrative uh, here in 
Jonah. What do we learn about God and his words? How should this text help to shape our faith and our mission? The first thing I want us to learn here, and I think God is uh, clearly setting forth, is that God is patient and his love is steadfast. That's the first point. God is patient and his love is steadfast. Isn't God's patience powerfully exhibited to Jonah in this account? Remember what Jonah had done. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Jonah directly disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh and preach his message to them. He fled the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 12 of chapter 1, Jonah would rather die than to do the will of God. He asked to be hurled into the raging sea. We would have certainly understood if God let him perish there. Jonah's rebellion deserved God's anger and discipline and and, and judgment, not his patience. But God's tender patience is what is revealed in chapter 3 and verse 1. And in chapter 4, by the way, when Jonah is whining about this little plant. Right? Extraordinary. God's tender patience is what is revealed in chapter 3 and verse 1 when the word of the Lord came to Jonah for a second time. And again, as we hop forward to chapter 4, when Jonah is complaining about this plant that initially he was excited about and then God sent the worm to eat it up. Why? Why was, uh, was Jonah upset about that, all of this? Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What did? This revival. It, look there, it displeased him exceedingly that God had by his Holy Spirit brought repentance to the hearts of these massive amount of people. And he was angry, it says. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I said, Uh, When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, would you take my life? God is patient with this prophet, even throughout chapter 4. Indeed, it would have been incredibly kind and patient of God to simply rescue Jonah from the raging sea and then after to send him home and replace him with a more compliant prophet. But God, in his patient love with Jonah, gives him a second commissioning, giving the same marching orders uh, that he gave to Jonah the first time around. And doesn't God's action remind us of the way that he often deals with us? Beloved, aren't you thankful that God is patient with us? Aren't you thankful that when we show a lack of compassion to the lost, that God doesn't throw us off, kick us out? He's patient with us. His covenant love, His steadfast love endures forever. Time and time again, we live out our lives in contradiction to God's commands, but He doesn't cast us off. Oh, how patient God has been with each one of us as he was with Jonah. How many times in prayer have you said something like this? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, why do you continue to love me as you do? 
Well, the answer is because He loves you with a love that is infinite and unchanging, a love that is rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you are united to Christ, the apple of God the Father's eye, so you too have become the apple of God the Father's eye and the brother or sister of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the perfect expression of the love of God, and through faith in Him, you are His adopted child, never to be left or forsaken. This glorious reality makes one, doesn't it, makes one want to live with greater measures of gratitude in our lives and obedience, great measures of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control in our Christian lives and, and as we relate with one another. God is patient with Job, and He's patient with us. And this, again, ought to create high levels of gratitude in our hearts and willingness, a willingness, dear ones, to be patient with others. The second truth that emerges from this text is that God's Word is the primary means by which He saves and nourishes the elect. God's Word is the primary means by which He saves and nourishes the elect. Notice in this text, again, what God has chosen to bring about the biggest spiritual revival the world has ever known, the simple preaching of the Word of God. Call out against it the message that I tell you. I spend an entire sermon in my series in Jonah talking about just that phrase, that, that, we, that preachers are called to preach the message that God gives. As Charles Simeon, the great Cambridge preacher, said, we, don't, we come to the text as the servant of the text. We don't come to the text to say, okay, I've got a few things today. Let me see how the Bible can back that up. We come as the servant saying, what does the Bible say? How can I explain it and apply it faithfully? Call out against it the message that I tell you, God says, that I've commissioned you to preach. Nothing more, nothing less. And wouldn't so many of our problems in the modern church be solved if pastors and seminarians would simply do what Jonah did, which is to receive the message from God and then to preach that very message. The Apostle Paul, when leaving the elders at Ephesus in chapter 20 of Acts, could express with a clear conscience that he was innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 26 and 27. The proclamation of God's word by his commissioned prophets, apostles and elders is his primary means of calling people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One of the best things you can do as a church member here uh, at Covenant PCA is to pray for your pastors that they faithfully prepare and preach the Word of God to you because it is through the preaching of the Word that God creates and sustains and nourishes and comforts saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's so important in the life of the church. And what is a stumbling block to some and to others foolishness? To those who are being saved, gospel proclamation is the power and wisdom of God shining forth. There's a lot of discussion these days uh, in the broad evangelical world about what it is we should be preaching from 
the pulpit? What it is that people need to hear? Well, these things were true in the first century as well. There were those who wanted to see signs. There were those who wanted to, to hear sophisticated uh, 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 arguments and, and, and wisdom and philosophy. Um, some today want to hear sociology and psychology. Uh, but what we see the Apostle Paul committed to uh, and what we ought to be committed to is the faithful preaching of Christ and Him crucified, preaching the word of the cross, preaching that which Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 declares when Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power. The gospel is the operative power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Uh, I was talking to a young man today at lunch who's been in the church for about three weeks. I don't know if he's here tonight. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some who perhaps are here this evening and don't really totally understand why this pulpit is so high and why it's so central and why there's such an emphasis on expository preaching in this church. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us why. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Where is the power of God unleashed? Where is the power of God operative to save and to sanctify sinners? It's in the gospel. And how does the gospel come to us? It comes to us through preaching. It comes through the ear gate. The organ of faith is the ear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Paul says here, for the word of the cross, in other words, the gospel, is folly to the world, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God through the preaching of the gospel to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, we the apostles, preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think about where the context of where Paul is writing in Corinth. And by the way, when he's in Corinth, he's writing his epistle to the Romans. And think about the Greco-Roman world. Think about Rome. All the 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 powerful armies, the Caesars, the powerful philosophers, the architecture, the great temples, 
the music, all of this power and glory. And Paul is saying, I don't preach anything but Christ and Him crucified. Think about how countercultural that is in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. Paul, you've come to preach a dying Savior on a cross. That's your Savior? And meanwhile, Rome is flexing with all their, their armies and their philosophy and their education and their architecture and all their powerful religion and temples. And Paul says, yes, this is who we preach. And then he says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, now listen, No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the whole point. That God gets the glory when a theology of the cross is preached in our churches, when the gospel is preached in our churches, God gets the glory. We boast in Him. We don't boast in our, 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 our philosophy of ministries. We don't boast in, in, in techniques. We don't boast in all the things that we can do and all of our programs and these kinds of things. We boast in the gospel that we preach. And Paul writes this, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided again to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Now listen. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and of what? Power. In the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in, again, the power of God. Do you see how many times Paul talks about the power, the saving power of God? How do we get that? How do we receive that? We receive it through the faithful proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that the Son of God became one of us without ceasing to be God, lived a a righteous life according to the law, died a sacrificial atoning death on Calvary for us, and rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell for our salvation. And so when church growth experts replace the heralding of God's truth with entertainment and, and programs and a focus on uh, music teams and, and, and fog machines, and I was just li- listening to someone tell me today at lunch that they were in a church where a fog machine started going. And uh, this really happens. It actually really happens. People really do that. Um, there's a church in our area where literally they had a, a summer sermon series focusing on movies and taking moral stories out of the movies that they were showing clips of. And, and to introduce the series, they literally had a 30-minute performance of The Greatest Showman, hiring professional acrobats and singers, and they handed out popcorn to everybody as they entered uh, the, the church. It literally was a circus. 
for 30 minutes. People on stilts. There was a, a trapeze in the sanctuary. I watched a little clip of it uh, online, and um, it was very well done. It was well done. I mean, it was so professional. It was all professionals that they had hired to come in and do this. But is this really what God has, has called us to? There are always reasons for doing these kinds of things. There are good intentions from many who, who sometimes don't know any better. They think, well, we'll we're going to get non-Christians in here and then we're going to sort of slide the gospel in at one point. But is this really where the power is. The power is in the preaching of the Word of God. We see that in Jonah so clearly. God has chosen the simple, unadorned means of word-centered proclamation through word and sacrament to advance His kingdom and destroy the works of the devil. Here in our text, God saves an entire pagan city through the simple means of a recommissioned reluctant prophet who merely preached the Word of God. When something amazing like this happens through such unimpressive means, who ends up getting the glory? It's God. And that's the point. That's the point. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. So through faith... Through faith, God's redeemed are constantly driven to Christ through these means. And God receives all the glory. The third truth that emerges in this text is that God's word, when received by grace through faith, causes true spirit-filled repentance from sin. Now, we live in a culture that has a very light-hearted view of sin as, as defined in Scripture. The response of the Ninevites to God's message is almost shocking. We have to ask ourselves, have I ever really responded to my own sin in these ways? They didn't receive God's word with half-hearted, a half-hearted shrug of the shoulders. Rather, from peasant to king, the people of Nineveh fast and throw themselves down to the dust and the ashes. They repented of sins, their violent behavior, for instance. Here's the point. True faith is always accompanied by true sorrow for sin. Our own confession in chapter 15 states that repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Why is that? Because what accompanies true faith is also spirit-wrought Repentance, a turning from sin and a turning to God. Jesus himself says in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here we see the Ninevites repenting for the first time. But this is, of course, not the only time a person repents when they become a Christian. Uh, sanctification means that there's a lifetime of repenting of sin and turning from sin, that, that remaining sin in our hearts. Uh, that we're seeking to mortify. We're, we're repenting of that sin, turning from that sin, confessing that sin, and looking to Christ for grace and forgiveness and growth and maturity and progress in the faith. Of course, you'll know that Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, one of these Theses says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said repent, 
willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. We should be those who are constantly repenting of our sin in the presence of our Savior. Indeed, the fruit of true repentance is a life of ongoing faith and repentance, a continual turning from sin to increasing delight in Christ and His Word. Fourthly, we see in this text, this needs to be made clear, that God does not change His mind or His sovereign will. I just want to comment briefly on this in case there's any confusion. Some would see this text and read verse 10 and think, did God change His mind here? Did He change His mind? Is there some kind of conflict within God? Was He initially going to destroy the Ninevites and then He changed His mind? Did He repent? Well, no, not at all. We want to weigh these kinds of texts against others which give us a lot of clarity like Numbers 23 verse 19 which says, God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. God never has a V8. He he never says, oh, something, nothing ever occurs to God. Those of you who are going through a rough patch in your life, those who are who are suffering. Uh, God hasn't forgotten you. Uh, he hasn't made a mistake. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Uh, these, are, these are difficulties. These are challenges uh, in the Christian life. But God hasn't forgotten you. He never forgets His people. He, he brings into our lives what the Puritans called severe mercies in order to humble us and to draw us close to His side and to wean us off of this world and to to strengthen our faith. But here in this text, we see that uh, not only is God using anthropomorphic language, language that that God uses in Scripture at times to help to communicate to us uh, in a way we can understand, because uh, if He didn't do this, we wouldn't understand uh, God uh, as we ought. But also we must understand that, the, the, Nineveh, that uh, the Nineveh that God was going to destroy no longer exists. Um, now they are repentant. They believe God. By the sovereign mercy of God, they are a repentant nation. Uh, and then the fifth point is this. Salvation is paid for by the blood of Christ. Some might look at this text and think, well, where's, where's the gospel here? Uh, what are they believing in? What are they, what are they looking to? Well, we have to ask, was God's mercy upon Nineveh free? Some have the notion that God's forgiveness is a simple sweep of the hand, a, a benevolent wave of the divine wand or hand, and all is well. But this is not how it is. Uh, sin must be paid for. And because God is holy, and perfectly just, no sin can go unaccounted for, even the sins of the 8th century Ninevites. All sinners need a mediator. And so we look to Christ here. How can God forgive Nineveh of their sins? Through faith. Through faith in what, you might ask? Faith in God and His promises fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is free in the sense that we cannot earn it. 
but it is not free in that Christ paid for it with his own blood. Verse 5, Nineveh believed God. And like Abraham, like us, by his grace, it was accredited to them as what? Righteousness. That righteousness we heard about this morning from Romans 3. They believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness manifested and revealed in the person of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. The one who was to come. We must remember that salvation poured out upon these 8th century Ninevites is rooted in the work of Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. I want to ask a question of all of us tonight. As we think about Jonah, as we think about the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, which is kind of the main theme of the book of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. But I want to ask us all of this, this question. Do we have compassion on the lost? Are we praying for lost people? Are you, dear Christian, praying specifically for lost people in your family, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace? Are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Thomas Watson, the popular 17th century English Puritan, wrote a wonderful little book called The Godly Man's Picture, written with a scripture pencil. And in it, Watson describes the life, character, and fruit of a godly man. In section 24, he expounds upon the fact that a godly man strives to be an instrument for making others godly. He writes that the godly man or woman, quote, is not content to go to heaven, but wants to take others there. The godly person, the one close to Christ, is not just content to go to heaven, but wants to take others there. He goes on, quote, The glory of Christ is as dear to him as his own salvation. Therefore, that this may be promoted, he strives with the greatest effort to bring souls to Christ. If men loved Christ, they would try to draw as many as they could to him. He who loves his captain will persuade others to come under his banner. Don't you love that? He who loves his captain will persuade others to come under his banner. This is a clear make of a godly man or woman, namely wanting others to be drawn unto Christ and praying and working toward that end. Jonah is a book that helps us to reflect upon God's compassion and mercy for the vilest of sinners. The vilest of sinners, the the, the violent Ninevites, enemies of Israel. I think we're being taught here tonight in this book That we too are called to have this Christ-centered compassion on the lost. Even those that many would see as enemies in their hearts. Whether from other nations or other uh, viewpoints or ideologies. We are called to reach the lost. And so pray. Trust the Lord. Know that nobody is beyond the reach of God's power. Saving power for those whom he will by his grace draw to himself. Pray that God would raise up new missionaries to go to the nations and provide us with the resources to send them. Pray that God's gospel would compel us to evangelize the lost in our own communities, 
I pray that amidst the political fervor of our time that we would be humble witnesses of God's sovereign grace in Christ and pray that we would cherish the Savior whom we would preach and never flee from His presence when we find ourselves wandering from Him. May we, by God's grace, repent and throw ourselves into the merciful arms of our Savior, a Savior who is patient with His people. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for Jonah. There are so many things, O Lord, for us to learn in this book. Uh, We ask, as we have touched upon some of them this evening, uh, especially, Lord, uh, as we have touched upon the power of the gospel through the proclamation of Your Word, that that this church and my congregation and churches all over the PCA would be renewed in their emphasis upon and commitment to uh, the faithful proclamation of the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation to all who believe, and that as we go from this place into our neighborhoods and workplaces and vocations, uh, that you would be pleased to, by your Spirit, work in us a greater heart of compassion for those who do not know you, uh, that we uh, would be your faithful witnesses Uh, in a world who so desperately needs the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.